Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of his word. Let's begin. This message is titled, Where Courage Comes From. And our reading is in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 4. But before we read, I just want to say what an encouragement it is to see these notes. So many of them left for Michael and for Pastor Bo and for Pastor Rhett. And as a member of this staff team, I, I get a front row seat into the lives of our pastors and we have two of the hardest working men and most resilient men that I've ever been around in my life but you know that and we are very thankful for them and it's a privilege to get to open the word of God and teach in this church and in this community and I especially pray that our our two teaching elders our pastors would be encouraged by our message today our reading is in Acts chapter 4 please turn there in your Bible or follow along in the bulletin Peter and John have been arrested. Their crime is that they have spoken about Jesus. The high priests and the staff of the temple in Jerusalem didn't like that. They held them overnight, and before letting Peter and John go, they threatened them. And they warned them, do not speak any longer in this name, the name of Jesus. Have you ever been threatened? Have you ever been been intimidated by your circumstances? Have you ever felt intimidated to not tell anyone about Jesus. If, if that's true about you as it is for me, then this is a passage for you. Beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. And they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And indeed, Lord, in this town, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city To conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed God. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they had prayed... The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, would you hear our prayer today? Would you honor our gathering? Would you meet with us? Would you shake the places where we find ourselves now this morning, all over this city, Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit? Would you give us boldness and courage and hope that we might speak about all that you have done for us? And Lord, would you do these things so that you might show yourself glorious? Would West Alabama and East Mississippi look different because of your kindness to us? We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. When Colonel George Taylor arrived on the beach at Normandy, he was already an expert in amphibious warfare. Taylor knew, 
as the first senior officer to get on Omaha Beach that morning that the primary concern wasn't bullets flying overhead. The primary concern shouldn't be the shells exploding all around. To Taylor, the primary concern was inertia. He understood that if his men didn't aggressively and quickly get off of that beach, then they were going to be bogged down in that beach and they were going to die on that beach. So Taylor spent his morning going from station to station, risking his own life to speak to every soldier he could get his hands on, saying, men, there are two kinds of people who are going to stay on this beach. There are those who are already dead, and there are those who are about to be dead. Now you, go get off of this beach. We Christians find ourselves in a similar predicament. Taylor wasn't so much concerned with primarily what will happen to his men if they do move, Taylor's bigger concern is, what will happen to my men if they don't move? We Christians find ourselves in a similar spot. We spend so much time, so much worry, so much energy thinking about what might happen to me if I am honest about Jesus. What would happen if I told folks honestly what I believe? When perhaps a far bigger concern should be, what would happen if I didn't? What would happen if we don't? What would happen to our souls and to our churches in this world if we refuse to participate with the work that God is doing here. The world needs to hear the message of Jesus. And we have an unusual opportunity to participate in the work that he's doing in the world. Why is it that out of all of the problems going on in the world, all of the brokenness that happens in our world, why would we say that the message of Jesus is what this world needs most? Well, if your experience in this life is anything like mine, then you know that deep inside every single person is a deep, dark sadness and a disappointment. Everything that you've hoped for, everything that you've looked forward to have somehow failed to meet this desire you have for something greater. You were created to be in a relationship with the God who lives and reigns over every age and over every inch of the universe that he's created. And we find ourselves in a broken relationship, distant from him. And to make matters worse, this world is filled with false diagnoses, false thoughts of what the problem is, of of why we feel so disappointed so often. Many times we think if we would simply have greater self-esteem, then all of our problems would be solved. And if you're anything like me, you probably need more often to get over yourself, to think less of yourself, to feel the sweet self-forgetfulness that eludes me, that eludes you. There are others who think, Uh, Maybe if we could just get our economics right, or just get our medicine right, or just get our education right, or just get our politics right, then we'd fix it and everything would be well. There are others who deny that there's even a problem that would say this world is intrinsically good. In the 1800s, as people looked around during the Industrial Revolution and saw this massive form of progress, social progress, technological progress, the idea began to spread that maybe we're on the brink of utopia. Maybe all things are going to be well. We are going to finally live in harmony and things are going to be as they should be. But since then, we've had two global world wars. We've had one global cold war and an international age of terrorism. People don't believe that anymore. The world that we live in has a sickness. It's deeply broken and it cannot fix itself. And here's where we come in. We who have stumbled on the goodness of the gospel. We know that though this world cannot fix itself, there is someone 
who transcends this world, who is beyond this world, who has not neglected or forgotten this world, but descends into this world and is fixing it. He's making everything new. And because Jesus had our griefs placed on him, because Jesus had our judgment placed on him, we suddenly have the opportunity without any judgment remaining to approach the father. The one who carries us along in this disappointing life. The one who carries us along in the next life and the one who's making every single thing new so that one day there's not going to be a single ounce of sadness or sickness or death ever again. We have good news. We are people who have stumbled upon a mountain stream and God is inviting us to drink deeply from it until we're refreshed and have the strength to go tell a thirsty world that there's water to be found. We shouldn't be asking the question of what would happen to me if I do tell this message. A far bigger concern is what would happen in this world if we refuse to. And yet, if you're anything like me, you, you do feel threatened to make him known. You don't want to come off as awkward or weird or stupid or intolerant. So what do you do? The Bible answers relevant questions. The, the people that are described in the Bible are just like you and I. They're, they're fallen. They have shortcomings. They felt threatened too. Peter pretended to not even know Jesus on the night that Jesus was crucified. And here he is, the leader of this young Christianity, speaking boldly. What do you do when you feel threatened and intimidated about telling others about Jesus? Well, this passage gives us a very clear answer. The answer is to cast your concerns on him. That's the first blank in our outline, which is available on the bulletin that should be linked to this video. That's the main point of this passage, and it's the first blank in the outline. Cast your concerns on him. When Peter and John have been threatened, they go to their people, and with one voice, their people. I love that phrase. Uh, I think the Greek says something like, they went to their own folks, or they went to their own people. They went to their own possession people. They went to people. They knew they couldn't handle this life on their own, and so they turned to people. And then with one voice, they lift up together to someone even greater, to God. And they said to God, Sovereign Lord. They bring him their concerns. And this passage gives us three reasons why we are to bring our concerns to him. The first reason is cast your concerns on him because he controls every single thing. Look at verse 24. When they heard this, They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. Sovereign means unrivaled rule or authority. The word that they use is master. They're recognizing God, you are the one who's really in control of all things, regardless of how things appear. Master. And then they begin to do something unusual. You you might hear your children doing this when they come home from our Wednesday night classes, when our volunteers have spent time training them in the truths of the Bible, they begin to just list off things that God accomplished in Genesis chapter 1. They say, God, you created the heavens, and you created the earth, and you created the sea, and you created every single thing in them. Are they just playing some sort of Bible trivia game here? Are they just listing and trying to prove the things that they know to be true about God? No. Something far more relevant is happening. The idea is that, God, if you created the heavens and the sea and the earth and everything in them, then, God, you are the creator of every single thing. And if you created every single thing, then you, God, control every single thing, which means God 
is in control even of the things that threaten you. The things that threaten us are actually small problems compared to what he's capable of. Until about a month ago, we had a uh, semi-retired logistics business owner who is the facilities administrator of our church, the salt of the earth, Alan Gartrell himself. And I, uh, I would see Alan's to-do lists, and they were monstrously long. I mean, they were unfathomable how big the things that we would ask Alan to do were every single day. And one day, I noticed that Alan's list was even longer than usual. And I was a little worried about adding one more thing to Alan's list. And so I said, Alan, uh, would you be okay if I added one more thing to your list today? And you know what Alan did when I asked him if he'd be okay if I added one more thing to his list? He looked me in the face and he laughed at me. (laughs) Because Alan knew. In his multi-decade logistics career, Alan had already fixed problems that were nothing compared to anything that the youth pastor could have possibly stumbled upon. Alan was going to be just fine. I was in good hands. And you find yourself in, in the same spot. You see, you have a God that has already solved problems and moved mountains far bigger than anything that we find ourselves stumbling upon now. God has accomplished the reconciliation, the forgiveness of sinners into the presence of a holy God. And if he has not withheld Jesus from us, his own son, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You have a God who is capable of delivering us from far more than the circumstances we find ourselves in even now. When you pray, take this prayer as a model. Don't only bring the things that threaten you to him. Don't only bring your concerns and your worries and your needs to him. You certainly can. He's gracious. He hears you. But take the time to honor and speak about who God is and what he has accomplished and adore him and worship him. Because when you spend time worshiping him, praising him for who he is and the things that he has accomplished, suddenly your perspective begins to change and you see this God is far greater than any place I find myself in. And you cast your concerns on him because he is the God that controls every single thing. Second. Cast your concerns on him because he controls every single moment. Look at verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So they begin to quote, they had been talking about things happening in Genesis 1, and now they turn to Psalm 2, and they say, Lord, you said something to us. You spoke through your Holy Spirit by our father David. Who's that? King David. A thousand years earlier, reigning in the same city, this is first century Jerusalem, the passage that we're reading. A thousand years earlier, David spoke. He wrote Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, he says, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. David is griping to God, and God listens to your griping, and he says, God... Why does it seem that every single nation and every single leader is willing to rebel against the one true God over all things? And why are they setting themselves against the king that you have chosen, God? And that was David's concern. And now a thousand years later, a group of believers in Jerusalem are saying, God, the international conspiracy that David seems to be describing of kings setting themselves against you and against your king, it seems to be happening right here in first century Jerusalem. There's a Galilean king named Herod. There's a Roman governor named Pilate. 
there seems to be a large group of Jewish leaders that were committed to conspiring together to kill your true servant, Jesus. It was the darkest day in human history when the one true God came to deliver people to himself. How did our sickness, our wickedness respond? We executed him. We led him to be crucified. We turned against the God who saves. And look at verse 28. They did all of this. The darkest moments of human history, they did according to what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, the darkest moments of human history seem to be something that God has no problem at all carrying out in a way that accomplished his own purposes. God is in control of every single moment. God even seems to take the darkest moments in this world and bring unfathomable good out of them. On April 16th in 2007, which was 13 years ago this past Thursday, while I was sleeping on one side of Virginia Tech's campus, a gunman locked himself in an academic building on the other side of Virginia Tech's campus. And by the end of the morning, the gunman and 32 others were dead. And 17 people were injured. It was nothing short of a catastrophe. Terrible. And yet, within hours, students were leaving their dorm rooms, knocking on the dorm rooms of strangers to make sure that they were okay and giving them big hugs. When you would see people who were in classes with you that you didn't recognize, I mean that you recognized but you didn't know their name, they would see you and they would come running up and they'd give you a big hug. Within weeks and months, College students were asking life's big questions. Within a year, I was powerfully converted to Christianity, and my story is a story that's shared by dozens and dozens of others that were in Blacksburg, Virginia at that time. There's a word that J.R. Tolkien uses in his writing, and the word is eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe is nothing short of a catastrophe, but the Greek prefix eu means good. A eucatastrophe is a full-on catastrophe that somehow happens in a way that brings good. The world that you are living in because of sin is itself a you catastrophe. We live in a creation that has rebelled against God, and yet he has not forgotten it, but come into this creation to save it. And now the entire creation groans, yearning for the revelation of who is going to be with this God forever. God is taking the saddest and darkest and most scary days of our lives and somehow bringing about good. The physical, relational, and financial catastrophe that we are living through right now with COVID-19 is a you catastrophe. It is absolutely a catastrophe. But God is totally in control of it, and it will certainly be used to accomplish good purposes that God has determined beforehand. Therefore, if Christians understand that we serve and worship and follow a God who controls every single moment, then we should not be people who try to get out of our trials as quickly as we can, but we should be people who try to get out of our trials as much as we can. Count it all joy, my brothers, James tells us, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When should Christians be able to find joy in trials? What kind of trials? 
various kinds. The economic kind, the, the physical kind, the, the, the emotional and relational kind. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what good might God be doing in you during this catastrophe? In the last few weeks, uh, the student ministry staff have gotten texts of students who are finding deeper intimacy with Jesus studying the Bible than they've ever tasted in their entire lives because they finally have time to do it. And in our church, we've had members who are not vocationally in ministry that don't work for our church taking the time to make videos about how Jesus changed their life and spreading them on Facebook and Instagram. While I was out walking on my street the other day, a lady yelled an encouraging story from her driveway about how one of the doctors in our church had gone out of his way to FaceTime the concerned parents of a COVID patient at one of our local hospitals. God is somehow doing good. And and so we can cast our concerns on him. We can ask for boldness to speak his name and to offer hope during these days because he's totally in control of every single moment. And finally, cast your concerns on him because he controls every single grace. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threat. That is a prayer right there. When you say, God, you created every single thing, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. God, you control every single moment. You crucified Jesus by your own will, according to what you determined beforehand. And now, Lord, would you turn and would you put this power and attention on me and the things that threaten me? And you know what he does? He listens. That's grace. The God of the universe who reigns over all things cares. He's concerned about you. He is good. Like Rhett read just a few minutes ago, as far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how high his love sits on top of his people. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes sin from his people. And then they ask something crazy. They ask something wild. They say, God, would you continue Would you continue to allow your servants to speak your word boldly while you do even more gracious things? You stretch out your hand and you continue to bring healing and miracles in his name. That's hysterical to me because the things that got Peter and John into this predicament are speaking boldly about Jesus and God stretching forth his hand and bringing miracles in the name of Jesus. That's how they got into this spot. And then they say, God... Would you look on us and would you give us great boldness? Who is it that enables them to speak boldly? God does. It's grace. He has to do a work in you if you were to be a person who would speak honestly about what he has done for you. And I've found in my life that the people who tend to speak most boldly about Jesus are usually the ones that speak most boldly to Jesus. They come to Jesus. They say, Lord, I need you. Would you change me? Would you give me the courage that I don't have to speak this name that you've blessed me with, Jesus? Are you asking him for opportunities to tell people about Jesus? That's one of the scariest prayers you can ask because he has a tendency to answer it. When Peter and John were arrested earlier in this chapter, they surprised and startled the temple staff. 
The temple staff in Acts 4.13 said that when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men, no rabbinical training, no, no seminary, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. True boldness comes from intimacy with Jesus. That's what changes people. Here's, here's what we dream for at First Presbyterian Church of Meridian. We're asking that God, by his grace, the grace that he controls, would allow us to be a people who spread the gospel and grow Christians. Which means that we are asking God to make us a people who meet with him and then suddenly have this desire in us to take this message to every sad and lonely person all over Meridian, Mississippi, And we're even asking that God would raise up people here who feel such a burden to tell others about Jesus that folks from here would get the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And that's a scary thing to do, to take the gospel across the street or around the world. Where does that kind of courage come from? It comes from the one who controls every single grace. It comes from the one strong enough for us to cast our concerns upon. And then look at what happens in verse 31. After they prayed, The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. God shook the place that they were in, an Old Testament sign for his very presence, while he sent his actual presence, the Holy Spirit, into their lives. When they received the Holy Spirit, they continued to speak boldly about Christ, and Christianity grew all throughout the Mediterranean world. But that doesn't mean that life became easy, because 200 years later, after Christianity had grown, Throughout the Mediterranean world, Christians especially seem to be hard hit by a plague that entered Rome. At the peak of this plague in Rome, in the 250s, 5,000 people were dying of the disease every single day. And Dionysus, a Christian living in Rome at the time, said, Other people would think that this is not a time for festival, but far from being a time of distress, It's a time of unimaginable joy. You see, during this distress, people were beginning to take notes that Christians seemed to have a hope that allowed them to look forward to the next life and continue to live in this life, even when under great distress. God used that plague in 250 in Rome to spread the gospel even further into Italy. And Dionysus said this wouldn't even be a time for distress so much as it is a time of unimaginable joy. Not that sad things weren't happening, not that tough days weren't ahead, but he was saying that the testing of his faith was producing steadfastness in his own life. It was producing steadfastness in the believers around him, and it was giving them opportunities to show the world what a powerful hope they found in Jesus. Cast your concerns on him, and remember that this is no time to go at it alone. Where did Peter and John go when they were threatened? Verse, 30, verse 23 says, they went to their people. If you are sad, and if you are lonely, and if you're scared, this is not a time to be a loner. Let a friend know. Let a family member know. Call one of your pastors. Call your shepherding elder. Call a member of your Sunday school class. Lindsay Kyle, a licensed professional counselor in our church, is making herself available. Please reach out to her. Don't hesitate to use our church website or Facebook group. Uh, to find contact information. And let's cast our concerns on him together. And let's begin right now by praying. 
Lord, please hear our prayers. Please, Lord, speak to us. Lord, would you give us boldness and would you, Lord, extend your hand and bring the healing that we desperately need in this region? Would you bring the healing that we desperately need all over the earth? Would you please be with those that are practicing medical care? Would you please protect those who have the disease? Would you please, Lord, come against it and inhibit its spread to keep people safe? All so that people might see what a powerful deliverer you are. And would you give us the boldness to offer hope to this world, even while we grieve? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.